What do you know about the Trinity? How would you explain it? Or do you even try? Hi, this is Yvonne Cran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. In this series of three lessons, I'll help you understand the Trinity, and it isn't nearly as difficult as you might think. We'll start with part number one, understanding the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity. The challenge of understanding the Trinity. Many people believe that the idea of the Trinity is one of the most difficult to understand in the Christian faith, and I very much disagree. God does not intentionally confuse us as to who He is. He desires a relationship with us. The challenge to understanding the Trinity is the same challenge of understanding everything else about our faith, and that is, we need to look at what God's Word says about it. That's what I'm going to help you do so you don't simply accept statements that go something like this, oh, it's just a mystery we can't understand. Far too many Christians do that, and I think it's really tragic. We're going to stop doing that today. We're going to look at God's Word and the passages that specifically deal with the Trinity to do this. Now, this way of studying the Bible is different than reading the Bible as a whole, which I recommend that you do each year. But once you understand the message of the book, in other words, the Bible overall, it's valid to pull out verses on a particular topic, while at the same time, of course, making certain that you don't take them out of context or twist them to say something that they don't say. The verses that I'm going to quote about the Trinity are not exhaustive on it. There are many, many other verses in the Bible on the Trinity. They're representative of the basic teachings that I'm going to share. The whole Bible clearly teaches the reality of the Trinity, and I think you'll see that very clearly, I pray, after we go through these three lessons. Now, here's our overall plan for learning about the Trinity in three parts. Number one, we're going to understand the persons of the Trinity, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are uncreated, co-equal, and eternal persons. That's what this particular lesson is about. Next, we're going to look at understanding the Trinity Part 2, the one substance of the Trinity, and in that lesson we'll go through the attributes that are shared by the members of the Trinity and what each one of them means to us. And then the third and final lesson is Understanding the Trinity, Part 3, The Trinity Throughout the Bible. And we're going to look at passages that describe the Trinity and the roles of each member in both the Old and New Testaments. There will be additional notes, videos, podcasts, charts, all kinds of associated materials, resource links to them, available on www.bible805.com. I do have some charts that I've done up, and I can't encourage you enough to go to the website. There are free downloads on it, and they will help you visualize what I'm talking about here. Now, why do we even need to understand the Trinity? Can't we just go along in our Christian life and say, oh, it's a mystery or whatever? Well, an understanding of the Trinity is important to our personal faith, our relationship with our God.
One of the most frustrating things in any relationship is if we feel that the person we love doesn't understand us, and even worse, if they don't even care to find out about us. God loves us, and He wants us to understand Him, and He's gone to great lengths to make that possible. He gave us creation, He gave us His Word, He gave us Jesus, who is God incarnate. God made flesh so we can understand Him. So many problems in life are because we don't know our God, or we have false ideas about Him. This series of lessons hopes to change that for you. Now second, we need to understand what is false in other religions. A proper view of the Trinity is one of the key differences between Christianity and non-Christian religions such as Islam. It's also a key difference between the cults that are distorted interpretations of the Christian faith, such as the Mormon religion and Jehovah Witness. All of the ones I just mentioned and all other cults and false religions have distorted incorrect views of the Trinity. That is at the core oftentimes what makes them false. They are based on teachings that are totally in disagreement with what the Christian Bible teaches. Now in summary, all other religions and cults, they all believe in a primary God and overall Father. And none of them doubt or deny Jesus or the Holy Spirit exists. But here's here's where it gets tricky, and this is very important for you to understand. They do not believe Jesus is God, or the Holy Spirit is God, and they don't believe that either Jesus or the Holy Spirit are part of an eternal trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say that Jesus is either a lesser God or a created part of the Godhead. That is basically the Mormon view of Jesus. They believe that Jesus had a point in time, there was a point in time when Jesus did not exist, that he, they refer to him as our elder brother, and they mean that literally he had a beginning as the firstborn son of who they view as God the Father. Just spoiler alert here, the Bible says that that view is completely false, and I will, I'll show you how and why as we go along. Or, as the Muslims believe, they believe, they'll say, oh, well, we, we believe in Jesus, but they see him simply as a revered prophet, a very wise person, but totally human. And other religions and cults' views of the Holy Spirit are all that he is always lesser than God the Father and often lesser than Jesus. They see him as more of a force than actually a co-equal person. None of these opinions agree with what the Bible says about Jesus or the Holy Spirit, as you'll see. The problem, understanding the Trinity, though, isn't just with other religions. Because most Christians don't understand the Trinity. And that's why it's hard for them to spot problems with other religions' views of it. In addition, because most Christians don't understand it, again, they fall back on saying, oh, it's just too hard. Or they accept 
a really unbiblical and what's basically a heretical view of it without even thinking about it. Now here is one of the most common examples of wrong thinking about the Trinity. It's very popular for people to say that the Trinity's like water, that it's one substance. Yet it can be three and that it can be in the form of ice, liquid, and steam like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, at first you think, well, that kind of makes sense. I don't really understand. Now, it might be well-meaning, but this is in actuality the heresy of modalism. This and similar analogies are not truly useful because they're incorrect. They lead to false beliefs. You see, modalism has just one entity that changes in form or modes. At one time, they say God was the Father, another time the Son, another time the Holy Spirit. This leads to, in current day thinking, modalism. Now this is something that was rampant in the early church before they clarified their view of the Trinity which I'll get to but today this is the idea some churches have and this is false that God the Father was the mode of God in the Old Testament and God then becomes the Son in the New Testament and becomes the Holy Spirit today. Now it is very easy to disprove modalism. Primary, one of the primary passages, and a very obvious one that doesn't need a whole lot of interpretation, is if we look at the baptism of Jesus. In Matthew 3, 16 and 17, it says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All three members of the Trinity are here. One doesn't become another, become another. We have the Father speaking. We have the Spirit descending like a dove to empower Jesus for ministry. And Jesus being baptized. All members of the Trinity are united in the initiation of Jesus' earthly ministry, and they prefigure their roles in it. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. The New Testament continues with many references to both the separate and united work of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit as it does in the Old Testament. And you're going to see very clearly how the three of them work separately and together in the entire Bible, which I'll get into in a lot more detail in lesson number three. But in summary, modalism falls apart when you look at what the Bible actually says about our triune three-in-one God, as was shown in the example of Jesus' baptism. That's true of all the other incorrect views of the Trinity also. Now, we're not going to go into all the different terms and definitions and all that kind of stuff because though breaking down all the different false ideas might have been useful in seminary, and I know I had to memorize them like anybody else that went to seminary did, And but rather than discuss them, we're going to focus on the oft-repeated illustration of how do you spot 
counterfeit currency. You don't look at all the false kinds of currency. What you do is you study the real thing. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to study the real thing, the truth about the Trinity. Now this is how we're going to do that. Again, we have this series of three lessons. Part one, I'm going to introduce the Trinity and the persons of the Trinity. Part two, we're going to talk about the characteristics of the Trinity. And then part three, how the Trinity is revealed in the Old and New Testaments. And it's all going to be based on what the Bible says, not any outside interpretations of it. But first, we're going to deal with a little issue that is often brought up, and that is that the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Nor is the word Bible in the Bible, nor is the word Christianity in the Bible. There are many words we use to properly explain biblical concepts that are not precisely in the Bible, but that are biblically correct. Just as reading many Bible passages helps us identify what defines a Christian, so too looking at many passages in the Bible about the Trinity help us define the Trinity. Now to begin with, let's look back in history at the person who first used the term Trinity to describe our God. This was a man named Tertullian. Now, he was a Roman lawyer. He lived from 155 to 220 AD. This was quite early in the development of the Christian church. And prior to, again, becoming a Christian, he was a, he was a Roman lawyer. So he had a very logical mind. He was a very brilliant man. Now, as a result of his study, and in response to what he believed were false views of the Trinity in his day, he is the one who coined the term Trinity, and he defined it in this way, una substantia tres personae. He spoke Latin, that's Latin for one substance in three persons. Now, I created a chart to illustrate it. It's really pretty easy for me to describe, but there is a copy in the notes here we have our chart, our biblical view of the Trinity, and what this chart illustrates is that we have one God with one substance or set of attributes. Those are the things like God is holy, just, merciful, etc. But then the all of those substances are shared equally by the three persons of the Trinity. The God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now don't get confused now. We're going to take these three lessons to explain it. The chart is available again at www.bible805.com. Now in this lesson, we're going to look at the personhood side of the chart in more detail. And then in the next lesson, we're going to look at the substance side, the substance, the characteristics in more detail. Now, the reason that Tertullian separated substance and personhood is because, and this is real important, you need to understand this as we start, you can have a trinity of anything that has similar characteristics or works together. For example, you can have a group of three chairs, a government with three parts, a trio, a group of three people singing together. But what makes the Trinity that is our God unique, the three, those three persons unique, is its substantia, its substance, that the, the attributes of it, not just that it has three parts, only 
the Trinity of God has the substance equally shared by all of omnipotence, omniscience, total truth and justice, immutability, these characteristics and that substance those attributes are shared equally and eternally by each member of the Trinity. That is what makes the Trinity of our God unique. Now, many scriptures point to this uniqueness of our God. For example, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. A God who is total truth, who is total love, who is total justice, of course, is a being that has thoughts very, very different than our human thoughts. We have thoughts, we have ways, but God's are so exponentially different than ours. It is this unique essence of who He is that makes Him God. The unisubstantia, the one substance, the characteristics all members of the Trinity share, deserves a whole lot more study, which we're going to do in part two. But first... Let this. This is. I get excited just sharing this with you. We're going to dig deeper into the trace personas because this tends to be much harder to understand. At least it really was for me. We're going to define what it means to be a person when we say there are three persons of the Trinity. What does that mean? Now here is a dictionary definition of personhood. The state or condition of being a person, especially having those qualities that confer distinct individuality, personal identity, the distinct personality of an individual regarded as a persisting entity. Now some of the characteristics that a that personhood includes are they have personal relationships. A person can interact with others. Intellect, the ability to form independent thoughts, to be aware of those thoughts. And emotions, this is really important. It's the opposite of what is referred to as no affect. In deism, the uh, the God of deism and of some intellectuals, whatever, is just this totally emotionless entity that set the world in motion and then left and whatever. But no, our God has emotions and our God interacts with us. As some philosophers have referred to it, they call it the I-Thou relationship. We have a relationship, an interaction with our God. Specifically, our God, and he's given it to us, our God experiences the emotions of love, hate, sadness, joy. Our God is not a machine. And then two, another characteristic of personhood is will or volition, the self-generated ability to act. Now, a little bit more on personhood. We need to look at what a person is not. A person is not a force an influence, a solar object, a myth. Many other religions, they talk about their God being, you know, just a force or an influence or an endless sea or whatever. No, our God is made up of three persons. In theology, it's not just modes of existence. It's different, eternally existing persons. Personhood makes you a you. 
And that you, whether it's God or if you're born again in Christ Jesus, you are going to be the same you throughout all changes, throughout all eternity. Personhood is more than form. It can be corporeal or incorporeal. In other words, have a body or not have a body. And this is really important because the Father and the Holy Spirit are not corporeal. They don't have bodies, but they are clearly persons as defined by the characteristics we just talked about. And I was I was just thinking another example here. Think about this, especially if you're maybe past the age of 20. As you look in the mirror and your appearance changes, you more and more and more sense the reality that that's just a shell. That isn't really the real true you. Your personhood is always much more than just your appearance. And so we understand this even outside of theology, that personhood is more than form. This isn't some weird, vague, hard to understand thing, as you'll see as we go through this. Now that we could do this was surprising to me, that we could identify each of the parts of the Trinity as a person. Because when I first studied the Trinity, I thought of Jesus as a person, but that God the Father Father and the Holy Spirit were also persons, I have to admit, I didn't really understand it. But let's look now at how my understanding, and I hope yours also, will really change by looking at verses in the Bible that clearly identify the characteristics of personhood that I mentioned previously of personal relationships, intellect, emotions, and will for each member of the Trinity. We're going to list the characteristics and then quote verses in the Bible that clearly describe that person of the Trinity practicing or exhibiting or whatever you want to say that particular characteristic. First of all, God the Father engages in personal relationships. In John 3.35 it says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Intellect. In Matthew 6, 8, it says, Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask Him. Emotions. Psalm 86, 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And will. In Matthew 12:50, it says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we see that God the Father engages in personal relationships, has an intellect, has emotions, and has a will. God the Son. The Son engages in personal relationships. John 11, 41 and 42. He, Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you've listened to me. I know you always do, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken to you so that they might believe that you sent me. He has intellect. In John 2, 24 and 25, I sometimes have to sort of chuckle when I read this verse, but it says, but Jesus didn't trust him because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. And just a little side note on this, even though he didn't trust the people that he was speaking to, even though he knew the rotten stuff that was inside of him, he still 
loved him. And he still loves us, even with our bad attitudes. Emotions. Matthew 9, 36, in the Message Version, it says, He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. And, of course, John eleven thirty five, where it says, When Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb, it says, Jesus wept. And John thirteen one, where it says, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. And, of course, he had a will in Luke twenty two forty two, where it says, Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then God the Holy Spirit. This was so interesting to me when I studied this because the Holy Spirit engages in personal relations. In Acts eight twenty nine, in the New Living Version, it says, The Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk along beside the carriage. Intellect. In Romans eight twenty seven, it says, And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Emotions. In Isaiah sixty three ten, it says, But they re- rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he became their enemy and fought against them. And in Ephesians 4.30, that's one in the Old Testament that shows the Holy Spirit's emotions. But then in the New Testament, too, it says, Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. It's just just a little note here. It's astounding to me that we can cause our God's sorrow. The way we live can make the Holy Spirit sad, and we don't want to do that. Think of that. We can make the Holy Spirit sad. And then the Holy Spirit has a will. In 1 Corinthians 12:11, it says, It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. To summarize what I've just been saying, all three members of the Godhead are persons, having the characteristics of personhood. Yet their personhood is unique, as all the persons of the Trinity are God. And let's look at some verses that emphasize that fact. The Father is God. The Father is explicitly called God in John 6.27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Romans 1.7 To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.1 Paul, an apostle, sent not from man, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And 1 Peter 1.2 To God's elect, exiles, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And Jesus the Son is God. He's explicitly called God in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8, But to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
Jesus applied the name of God to himself. In Exodus 3.14, and God said to Moses, this is just the reference for it, I am who I am. And then in John 8.58, Jesus said to the crowd, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Am. Now, of course, this is why the Jews, and rightfully so, took up stones to stone him, because he was saying he was God. And they didn't believe that, but they knew the claim that he was making, and so they actually did what the law required them to do. He also performed works only God could do, such as creating the universe. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through and for him. Now, in addition, he forgave sins, he healed, he raised from the dead, he accepted worship as God. These things are just important, not only in our study of the Trinity, but named to be God. He didn't say he was God, whatever. Go back and look at these verses. This is, is good, um, good proof that he did claim to be God, that he was referred to as God. He did the actions that only God could do. And then finally, the Holy Spirit is God. He's called the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, where it says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit possesses the attributes of deity, omnipresence. Psalm 139-7 says, Where can I go from your Spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? He's omniscient. In 1 Corinthians 10, 2, 10 and 11, it says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God, and He's eternal. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And this is in Hebrews 9.14. And this verse alone, it specifically refutes the idea that the Holy Spirit is created, that the Holy Spirit is a lesser part of God. We're now going to talk about the interactions of each person of the Trinity with one another. The theological term when discussing the different roles of the Trinity is what's called the economic Trinity. Now, the term economic doesn't necessarily just mean, you know, money management or whatever. It comes from the Greek word ekonomia, which literally means household management. This is the term that describes the different roles that the members of the Trinity have, the different parts they play while all working towards the same goals. Now we see this illustrated in different ways throughout the Bible. Here's how it works in our salvation. God the Father initiates. He is the one who sends. In John 3.16 we see, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. 
God the Son accomplishes the work of salvation. 1 John 2, 2 says He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And God the Holy Spirit regenerates and renews us. In Titus 3, 5 it says, According to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And they do it all together in perfect love, harmony, deferring to one another when appropriate, working to glorify each other, which are all really great examples for how we should work together. Remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he said, I pray that they might be one as we are one. Well, we can't become God, but we can work together with one another in the same way, loving, supporting, deferring to, working together towards the same goals. Now, in review, in summary, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a mysterious, hidden teaching, but one that is clearly taught throughout the Bible. And you'll see more of the specific examples of that in Lesson 3. In this lesson, we saw how the three members of the Trinity are persons, uncreated, eternally, and equally coexisting. Now, I do have another summary chart for you where you can see the different views of the Trinity. The one in the center of the chart is what's called the Trinitarian view. And this shows very clearly by means of an illustration. And this is a very old illustration. It's sometimes called the shield of the Trinity or whatever. You'll see it in a lot of places. But it's a triangle where at one point you have the Father, and then you have the Son, and then you have the Holy Spirit. And it's joined by lines that say the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. They are separate persons, but all of them are God. So that's the correct view of the Trinity. And then I have illustrated on the same chart what is called modalism, where the Father becomes the Son and becomes the Holy Spirit. That's wrong, and it's clearly labeled wrong. And then Arianism, that actually is what offshoots of it. Many people say that's exactly what really Islam is, and also the Mormon religion in that they have a father God who created the Son, who also created the Holy Spirit, and they become lesser and lesser entities, but that only the Father is the true original God. And again, that is wrong. So if you want this summary illustration, please do go to Bible805.com. In our next lessons, we're going to look at Understanding the Trinity Part 2, the one substance of the Trinity. In that next lesson, we're going to talk about the attributes that are shared by the members of the Trinity and what that means to us. And then in lesson number three, we're going to look at the Trinity throughout the Bible and how the descriptions and the roles of the Trinity are talked about in the Old and New Testaments. And there's some really exciting stuff on that, that once you see it, it's like, oh, I had no idea that was there, but that will be in that part. Now, before we end, I just want to mention one more thing. If you're paranoid like I am, um, after I learned about the Trinity, I had this big fear, a word that 
What if I didn't understand which member of the Trinity was doing what? Or if I referred to God in the wrong way, would that be a big mistake? Will the Father not get the honor that he deserves? Will Jesus be upset with me? Will the Holy Spirit be sad? I mean, I've really worried about these things. But as I studied it, I realized, no, I don't think so. God often uses human analogies to refer to himself. And here's one that I came up with that might be useful that I think explains this situation. And that is, when people talk about coming to the Prens for dinner, my name's my last name's Siobhan Pran, in case you forgot, and that's neither here nor there, but anyway, um, they don't say, and my husband's name's Paul, they don't say, well, Yvonne's going to cook, and Paul will tell jokes and talk, and they'll both make us feel welcome. People just say, we're going to the Pran's house. My husband and I are a unit in our ministries, in our life, in our work. And though we remain individual persons with different roles in it, we love our guests that join us, and we don't expect them to define exactly who did what when they sit down to dinner or thank us or talk to us afterwards. I think this is a small picture of the much greater unity and unique personhood of the Trinity and of the much greater love the Trinity has for his creation. I think God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit delight when we make even the most feeble attempts to learn more about him or to talk about him regardless if we are exact in our distinctions of understanding precisely which person of the Trinity is doing what at a precise time. Now a final reminder of the Trinity. I pray this study of the Trinity hasn't been merely a theological exercise, but an opportunity to get to know our God better. In closing, consider this Trinitarian benediction from the Apostle Paul. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Because our God, the Trinity of three persons existing from all eternity, have shared grace, love, and fellowship among themselves, they can now pour it out on us. That's the essence of the Trinity. Now that isn't so hard to understand, is it? That's all for now. Please check out the lesson notes, the other materials, the charts, and so many things that will additionally help you at www.bible805.com. If this teaching has been of benefit to you, please consider supporting it with your prayers and gifts. And information on how to do that is on, again, www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.